Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
We have been working our way through the book of Revelation. This morning we are going to begin Revelation chapter 18. So you can turn there. We have spent the last couple of weeks concentrating on chapter 17, verses 14 to 18, but the earlier part of chapter 17 was about the fall of Babylon. The entirety of chapter 18 is about the fall, the annihilation of Babylon. When I was introducing chapter 17 to you, I mentioned that Babylon is an actual historic place. It is one of the nations in the Middle East that ever oppressed God's people, Israel. And then it was conquered, and then it was destroyed exactly like the prophets of Israel said were going to happen to it. However, the prophets of Israel have a tendency, as we have shown as we've gone through the various prophetic books, we have shown that the Old Testament prophets have a tendency to make these sudden leaps over great distances of time. They talk about the things that are going to happen immediately in their own lifetimes or in the span of a couple of kings. But in the midst of talking about that, they'll suddenly just leap into what's going to happen at the end of the age. We're going to see that again this morning. Because after reading chapter 18 of Revelation... We're going to spend time looking at the Old Testament prophecies that have to do with the destruction of Babylon physically, and we're going to see how they do that. They leap forward to talk about the destruction of Babylon ultimately. And so there is much more to Babylon, the word Babylon, the name Babylon. There's much more to it than just the physical location in the Middle East. As you read the description of it, especially in Revelation 18, you're going to see that it includes the economy of the world and how the world's economies all join together in their denial of God, in their desire to get rich and to control people. You're going to see that the word Babylon is a reference to the religions of the world especially all those religions that deny Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. You're going to see that the word Babylon includes the entire world system and has ever since the time of Babel. You only get a couple chapters into the book of Genesis before you read about Babel. We all know Babel because of the Tower of Babel and, oh yeah, the app. Because that's the place where God confused all the languages in order to spread people out across the planet. And so that they couldn't, again, conspire as a single unit to rebel against God. And we found that Babel was constructed under the leadership of a fellow named Nimrod, who was, according to the King James, a mighty hunter before God. It's kind of a mistranslation. If you look at all the sources for it, you see that Nimrod was actually an enemy of God. He was opposed to God, and he was a leader of Babel, and so they were building a tower to God. You're going to see the language today talk about the destruction of Babel, of Babylon, of the religion of Babylon, of the system of Babylon, 
of the merchandise of Babylon. It is a description of the entire world system that we are living in at this very moment, which has inhabited planet Earth ever since the time of Nimrod and Babel. So that would be the entirety of human history, so you can see why God would be opposed to it and why ultimately God in his sovereignty is going to destroy it. Mm. Okay, that's the introduction to chapter 18, which I'm now going to read from top to bottom. After these things. What things? After the things we just read about. After there was war against the Lamb, and the Lamb overcomes all of his enemies because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And after our returning with him because we are the called and the chosen and the faithful. After the ten horns John saw and the beast are described to him and how they're going to hate the harlot, the Babylonian system, and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until all the words of God should be fulfilled because he is absolutely sovereign and the woman who you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. After those things, John saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was lit up. The earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Hang on to that phrase, because when we go back and look at some of the Old Testament prophecies about Babylon, you're going to see that exact same declaration. So it was declared in the Old Testament that Babylon and everything that Babylon is, everything that Babylon stands for, is ultimately going to be destroyed to the glory of God. You get to the book of Revelation, and it hasn't happened yet. And the same declaration comes up again, that Babylon is ultimately going to be destroyed. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And she has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison for every unclean spirit and a prison for every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her immorality and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you may not participate in her sins and that you may not receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as the heaven, and God has remembered her iniquity. If that sounds familiar, I mentioned to you that the beginning of Babylon is Babel and the building of the tower under Nimrod. And what was the purpose of the tower they were building? To reach to heaven. They said, we're going to reach to heaven with this tower we have built. Look at the irony here of her sins have piled up as high as heaven. Babylon finally reached heaven and reach there with its sinfulness, with its depravity, with its fallenness. And so God is judging Babel, Babylon. 
Her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered all her iniquities. Pay her back, even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds in the cup which she has mixed, mixed twice as much for her. Mm. To the degree that she has glorified herself and lived sensuously, to that same degree give her torment and mourning, for she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and I will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day, her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God, who judges her, is sovereign, is strong, is almighty is the one with all the power. Therefore, God himself can take down the kingdoms of this world. Therefore, God himself can destroy the economy of this world if he wants to. Therefore, God can destroy the religions of the world if he wants to, and he can take down all the kings and kingdoms of this world because he's the one who defines himself with the proper name El Shaddai. I am the God who has all the power, all the authority, the God who's sovereign. And he's going to demonstrate that by taking down all the power and the wealth of this world. By the way, did you notice the haughtiness of her claim? I'm a queen, and I'm not a widow, and I've never been in mourning. What is the most often cited sin in the Bible? Pride. Pride. You should all know that by now. You should all have it tattooed to your forehead. You should all know pride is the downfall of human beings over and over and over again. And what is Babylon's chief characteristic that God calls out here? Pride. Pride. That ability to stand against God and say, I'm independent, I don't need you. I'm fine, I don't need the maker of heaven and earth, I'm a self-made man, I control my life, I make my own decisions. That is the sin that is most often cited in the Bible. So, of course, Babylon would be wrapped up in nothing but ego and pride and self-sufficiency. For that reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. And the kings of the earth, who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her, will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her, Because no one buys their cargoes anymore, cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses 
and chariots and slaves and human lives. And the fruit that you long for has gone from you. And all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city. She who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. And every shipmaster and every passenger and every sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like this great city? And they threw dust on their heads, which is a sign of mourning and repentance. But they're not mourning and repenting before God. They're mourning the fact that they've all lost the center of their commerce, the center of their wealth, the center of their religion. They throw dust on their heads and they're crying and weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints, you holy ones, and you apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. And a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone, And threw that into the sea, saying, Thus will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in her any longer. And no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of the mill will not be heard in you any longer. And the light of the lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. But all the nations were deceived by your witchcraft, by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and the blood of the saints and the blood of all who have been slain on the earth. Okay, so that entire chapter is about the fall of Babylon. Mm. And the descriptions of it are that it is Babylon, the Babylon system, this world system that has increased wealth and independence here on the planet. Now, in my experience, it is the people who are of great wealth who have the most difficulty ever recognizing their own dependence on anyone or anything else. Mm. Even Jesus talked about it. The man who says, my barns are full. Take rest. I have need of nothing. And Jesus' answer to them is, you fool. Good old Jesus. Meek and mild Jesus out there making friends and influencing people. Jesus says, you fool, your soul is going to be required of you this night. And what is a man going to give in exchange for his soul? Mm. 
What if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? What are you going to give in exchange for that? Well, the whole world, through the system that we have developed as sinful, depraved, rebellious human beings, that entire system is inherently anti-God because it throws God off in favor of human independence, in favor of humans deciding for themselves where they're going to go and what they're going to do. Is there any actual theocracy on the planet right now? We have a lot of different religious systems. But can you think of a genuine theocracy right now? I'll save you the brain power. The answer is no. There are no theocracies on the planet. There are no nations that are completely devoted to God being their leader and king. Even Israel in the Old Testament, when they were as close to a theocracy as this planet has ever gotten, even they end up going to Moses and saying, we want a king. Everybody around us has kings. All the other nations have kings. We want a king so that we can be like the other nations. Human beings are inherently, as part of our fallen state, we are inherently independent rather than considering ourselves utterly dependent on God. And that's all under the heading of this system that is called Babylon here. Now, if I were to start listing for you the many ways in which Babylon and the system of Babylon has influenced our society, I could spend the rest of the morning talking about it. Because even though you as 21st century American people might think, well, that was Babylon back then. That was Babylon that hasn't existed for you. That's Babylon a system. But that's not me. Okay, so let's talk about it. Just a a couple quick examples of things that reach all the way back to Babylon, which have become inherent in our religion and in the religious systems, the Christian religious systems of the world. And even though we would like to think that we are independent of them, we are completely dependent on them. I won't go into great detail, but we're about a month and a half from the Christ Mass. Mm -hmm. That's Babylon. In the spring, we're all going to go worship the sun when it comes up and call it by the nickname Ishtar, who was a goddess of Babylon. Mm -hmm. Today is the day of the sun. We call it the Sunday. The Bible calls it the first day of the week. The Babylonian system of this world has given it a name. It's the day of the sun. Tomorrow will be the day of the moon, and then it's Tammuz Day. And there were 40 days of weeping over the death of Tammuz. We just call that Lent. Then there will be Woden's Day, which is why Wednesday is so weirdly spelled. Mm. Nobody ever pronounces it Wednesday. Day. Wednesday, because it was Woden's Day, we've just contracted it. Then Thor's Day, then Freya's Day, then Saturn Day. Our months are named after Janus and Mars. Mm. Our, Our months, our days, our entire calendrical system by which we live and by which all commerce is done around the whole wide world is all handed to us with names that come straight from Babylon. The only reason I mention that is to say... If you think you're living independent of the Babylonian system, you're not. 
It has infiltrated our society. It has infiltrated our religion. Babylon says, I'm a queen. That's where the concept comes from of the queen of heaven. Mary is called in the Catholic tradition the queen of heaven. Where did that come from? It's not in the Bible. That's Babylon. I could just, I could go on. I could go on and on. And even now as I'm doing it, I see Jeff going, don't go on and on. Don't, just let go. All I'm trying to prove is that the Babylonian system is permeating this world. Okay, so now that we have read chapter 18, and we will go back and look at some of the details probably next week, but what I want to show you first today is that the Old Testament prophets predicted the fall of actual physical Babylon. Do you know your Israel history? If you don't, I'm going to have to just sweep through this real quick. But Israel was divided between 10 northern tribes and two southern tribes. They were known as the House of Israel, the northern tribes, and the House of Judah, the southern tribes. The northern tribes, those 10 tribes, were the first to go into captivity. It was Sennacherib, it was the Assyrians who first took those 10 kingdoms into captivity. Assyria at that time, we're talking about 700 years before Christ here, they were the primary power in the Middle East. But then started rising up Babylon. You probably know the name Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar then rose up and Babylon rose up to such power that they conquered Assyria. And then they took the southern tribes into the Babylonian captivity. I mention this because that's a very big deal in the Old Testament. Both the 10 northern tribes being taken out of their country, the very country, the very land flowing with milk and honey, the very land that Israel collectively was taken out of Egypt and then taken to this land that God said is Abraham's in perpetuity. It's yours and your descendants after you forever. And then they get to the land. And then they rebel against God. And then they don't keep his Sabbaths. And then they chase after foreign gods. And he sends them off to Babylon. And then he sends his prophets to tell them exactly how long they're going to be in Babylon. It's a very big theme in the Old Testament. And yet, as the Old Testament prophets, we're going to look at some of Isaiah and some of Jeremiah this morning, as they are talking about the fact that God is going to deliver them from Babylon and that God is going to take them back to their own land so that they can rebuild his temple, so that they can reestablish his worship, even in the midst of prophesying that return and that destruction of Babylon physically, the very same prophets make the leap to the end of time and start talking about the Babylonian system falling the same way that the book of Revelation does. So this is thematic to the Bible. That was all introduction. Are we good? Okay, fine. Turn to Isaiah 47. Let's start there. Isaiah is a prophet of Judah around 740 to 700 B.C., 
Israel's deportation, as I said, to Assyria happened in 722 BC, right around there. In 701 or thereabouts, Sennacherib carried away 200,000 captives from the cities also of Judah, the southern kingdom. So Sennacherib was really powerful in his assault against the northern and the southern tribes. He took the northern tribes into captivity, and then 21 years later, he is still trying to get to Jerusalem. Fortunately, God protects Jerusalem, but he allows several of the cities of Judah, the southern kingdom, to actually fall. You can read about it in 2 Kings 18.13. Isaiah 47 talks about the fall of Babylon. So... You've got the northern tribes all taken into Assyria. They're out of their land. You have the southern tribes that are being assaulted by Assyria. Babylon comes up, conquers Assyria, and then starts again assaulting the southern tribes. And in the midst of all that, Isaiah shows up and talks about the destruction of Babylon, which at the time was the most powerful kingdom on earth. A couple of weeks ago, we read about how Nebuchadnezzar himself was referred to as a king of kings because he ruled over all the kingdoms of the Middle East. And yet, that seemingly impregnable, that seemingly unconquerable, that seemingly undefeatable nation, Isaiah shows up and says, you're going to fall. And how does he know? Because it's God that's going to take him down. And by the way, history tells us that what God's word says about the way they're going to be taken down happened exactly in time, literally, genuinely, physically, because the prophets of Israel said it's going to be the Medes and the Persians that are going to conquer Babylon. The hand writing on the wall during Belshazzar's feast even says it's the Persians. And so the Bible perfectly accurately describes the destruction of the most powerful nation in the Middle East, and it happens exactly like the Bible says. You can have tremendous confidence in your Bible. The more you know about the prophecy of the Bible, and the more you know about how those prophecies actually happened, the more confidence you can have when you pick up your Bible that this actually is the Word of God. Because if God didn't write this, then it's the luckiest book that was ever written. (laughs) But it happened the way God said, because God is sovereign. All right, Isaiah 47. I think I've talked long enough for you to all get there. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were the people group who lived in that area, who founded Babylon. So suddenly in the midst of crying out and prophesying against nations in the Middle East, Isaiah just launches into this dire prediction about what's going to happen to Babylon. And you have to remember, at the time, it's magnificent. It's fabulously rich. It's got the biggest, most powerful army. There's no way Babylon can fall. And yet Isaiah says, come down and sit in the dust. 
O virgin daughter of Babylon, sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no longer be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal. That's what the slaves did. And he's saying, Babylon, you're going to be like a slave. In order to eat, you're going to have to sit in the dust and grind with a millstone. Remove your veil, strip off your skirt, uncover the leg, cross the rivers. Your nakedness will be uncovered. Your shame will be exposed. I will take vengeance and will not spare a man. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is his name. The Holy One of Israel is the one who is going to accomplish the destruction of Babylon. We, sitting here in the 21st century, we've been, as human beings, on the planet 6,000 years of recorded human history. And during that time, lots and lots of kingdoms have risen up, and lots and lots of kingdoms have disappeared. Anybody seen a Hittite lately? Out hitchhiking by the road? Anybody seen a Jebusite lately? Those were kingdoms, people groups that just don't exist anymore. Anybody taken a vacation to Babylon lately? (laughs) Ancient Babylon was part of what we know as Iraq. Does it exist right now? No. Why doesn't it exist? It was once a great and powerful, mighty nation. And now it doesn't exist. God's word said it wasn't going to exist. And God himself said that the reason it wasn't going to exist was because The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, the one who is in charge of the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth, he is the redeemer of Israel. He is the holy one of Israel, and he is going to fight for Israel. And Babylon came up against his people. So sit silently, says verse 5, and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, For you will no more be called the queen of kingdoms. Now God describes how it is that the Babylonians managed to conquer Israel. And God takes credit for it. God says, the only reason you were able to conquer my people is that I was angry with my people. But now that you've conquered them, I'm angry with you. That's a really sovereign God. That's the same God who in Isaiah... 10 explains that he used the Assyrians to punish his people because his people needed to be corrected. And then he punishes the Assyrians for the haughtiness and the pride with which they conquered Israel. That's a really, really sovereign God who can use nations and peoples to accomplish his own will. And then when they do what he says they're going to do, he then punishes them for doing it because they did it too arrogantly. Are you comfortable with a God like that? Yes. That's the only God you find in the Bible. That's why it is picked up in Romans 9 and Paul ends up asking the question, You're going to say to me then, because Paul understands his own theology, he understands the God that he has presented, and he says, you're going to say to me then, how can God find fault with me? How can God find fault with anybody, considering we only did what he decreed we were going to do? 
That's a really good theological question. I mean, if God's in charge of everything and you only do what God says you're going to do, how can he then judge you for what you did? Because he's the one who decreed what you did. Do you remember Paul's answer? Who are you? Who are you? His answer is, who are you that replies against God? Doesn't the potter have the power over the clay to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, willing to show his power, was long-suffering with the vessels that were fitted for wrath so that he could show his mercy and grace on those vessels that were fitted for honor? Paul's answer to the question, how can God be like that? His answer is, God's like that. Get used to it. (laughs) His answer is, line up, put your face in the dust. That's the only God you get. You might as well get used to him. That's the same thing here in Isaiah. Here's his description of why it is that Babylon was able to conquer the Israelites. I was angry with my people, so I profaned my heritage, and I gave them into your hand, and you did not show mercy to them. Why would they? Why would the Babylonians, once they have conquered a people and made them slaves, their first thought would not be, okay, we brought you over here so that we can treat you sumptuously. We've made a party. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. But because the Babylonians conquered the Israelites with such force and were not merciful to them, God is now angry with the Babylonians and will destroy them utterly, not leaving even a man. You did not show mercy to them. On the aged, you made your yoke very heavy. And yet you said, I shall be a queen forever. And these things you did not consider, nor remember the outcome of them. Now then, hear this, you sensual one, who dwells securely and who says in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. Notice the phrase, you said to yourself, you were so secure You felt so good financially and militarily that you could actually declare, I am. Does that sound familiar? That's a name that God gives himself. Moses, when he sees the burning bush that's not consumed and yet it's burning, a voice says, Moses, Moses. He says, here I am. Take your sandals off your feet. The place where you stand is holy ground. Now you go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Okay, here's God defending Israel again, this time against Egypt. Go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses asks a completely logical question. Who are you? I'm supposed to go tell Pharaoh something on your behalf. Who are you? I mean, the Egyptians have lots of gods. They got a sun god. They've got an insect god. They got a god of the Nile. They've got a crocodile god. They've got snake gods. They've got a whole lot of gods. Which one are you? And God's answer is to not defend himself and not say, oh, I am the God of this or I am the God of that. He declares, I am the God who is. All those other gods don't exist. And he says, I am because I am. That's God's whole description of himself. I am that I am. And yet Babylon, in its haughtiness, has the pride, the arrogance to say, look at me, I am. 
Well, do you think God's going to sit still for that? No. You say, I am, and there is no other besides me. What a denial of God. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. But these two things shall come upon you suddenly in one day. Loss of children and widowhood. And they shall come on you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries. If that sounds familiar, it's the same thing we read in the book of Revelation. That one of the things that God has against Babylon is the witchcraft, is the sorcery that has replaced worship of Yahweh. And so much of what still permeates the world is witchcraft. And all of that witchcraft and all that sorcery has its roots in Babylon. And so God says, because of your sorceries, in spite of the power of your spells, and in spite of the fact that you felt secure in your wickedness, and you said to yourself, no one sees me, Nevertheless, your wisdom and your knowledge have deluded you. For you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I am struck by the phrase, your wisdom and your knowledge have deluded you. To this very day, the people who deny God, to this very day, the people who deny Christ claim to be the smart ones. And they look at us Christians and they say, well, you probably need it, but I don't. You probably wear them like a crutch because you can't stand on your own, but I'm smart. I'm grown up. I'm fully sufficient. I'm fine. And here is God saying, human wisdom, human determination, and that sense of I'm fine, I'm independent, I'm complete, I am, I don't need anybody, comes directly from Babylon, and it has deluded this whole world. Amen. And that's why there's no theocracies on the planet. You felt secure in your wickedness, and you said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you, for you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil will come on you, which you will not know how to charm away. That's God mocking them over the fact that they think, we know our witchcraft, we've got our sorcery, and we've got all this intelligence, and we've got all this wisdom, and God is saying, but there is disaster coming on you. There is judgment coming your way that you can't charm away. doesn't matter how many spells you cast. I'm God. And I will destroy you, and disaster will fall on you, for which you cannot atone. What are you going to give in exchange for it? God says there's no atonement, there's no substitute, destruction about which you do not know, and it will come on you suddenly. And then, continuing with his mockery, may I point out for just a moment that this is really, really sarcastic, what God is about to say? So I'm just saying that my sarcasm, for which I am well known, is a very godly quality. That's all I'm saying. Okay, fine. Look at verse 12. He's mocking them. Stand fast now in your spells and in your many sorceries. 
with which you have labored from your youth, perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you may cause trembling. You are wearied from your many counsels. So let now your astrologers and those who prophesy by the stars and those who predict by their new moons, let them stand up and save you from what's about to come upon you. Behold, you have become like stubble and fire burns them and they cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame and there will be no coal to warm by nor a fire for you to sit by. In other words, God is saying, I'm going to destroy them all. They can't save themselves. How are they going to save you? There's no human witches, no human spells. There's no human astrologers. There's no human predictors who even understand the pain, the horror, the terror that is coming on this planet. A time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, according to Jesus, and he'd be a pretty good authority. And here is God mocking the wisdom of human beings and saying, you don't even understand what's coming to you. Look, if you had any comprehension of God as a sovereign judge, you wouldn't be sitting here listening to me. You'd be on your face in front of him. You'd be crying for mercy. You'd be suing him for grace. You are my only hope. And here God is saying that very thing to Babylon. That if you had any idea who you were dealing with and that your astrologers and your soothsayers and your magicians and your sorcerers and those who study the stars and those who go by their new moons, those who claim to tell you the future because they prophesy according to the heavenly realm that God himself made. It's all part of God's system. He says, none of them can help you. I'm your only help. I'm your only hope, and you won't come to me. So have those become to you with whom you have labored, who have trafficked with you from your youth. Each of them has wandered off his own way, and there's no one who can save you. Turn to the book of Jeremiah. we got to move. I've got to keep going. If you are in the book of Isaiah, the very next book is the book of Jeremiah. You're going to Jeremiah 50. Okay, so I said Israel's deportation to Assyria was 722 B.C. So Jeremiah lives between 650 and 570 B.C. So we've moved forward about 100 years. Jeremiah, if his name sounds familiar, not only is he responsible for the book of Jeremiah, but he's also responsible for the book of the Kings. We know it as First and Second Kings. He's also responsible for the book of Lamentations. And all of Jeremiah's writing is done through amanuensis, which is a secretary who helped him, a man by the name of Baruch. And so as we look through Jeremiah in the days to come, you're going to hear a lot about Baruch. The Assyrians and the Babylonians had been at war with each other for a long, long time, and matters really come to a head around 612 B.C. when the Babylonians managed to conquer Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. And then the reason you should know about Jeremiah and Babylon is because Daniel and all the prophecies that come out of Daniel. Am I boring you yet? No. Okay, just want to make sure. 
All the prophecies that come out of the book of Daniel are a result of Daniel being in Babylon and having a copy of the prophecy of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says, you'll be in Babylon for 70 years. And so then all of the prophecies about the 490 years and all that stuff we've already looked at as we've gone through the book of Revelation is a direct result of Jeremiah and then Daniel and then Revelation. So the whole Bible works together, fits together, is all telling one story. Jeremiah is going to talk about the ultimate fall of Babylon. And in the midst of talking about the ultimate fall of Babylon, suddenly the language is going to change. And he's going to leap forward to the ultimate restoration of Israel, which has not happened yet and which is described, again, by all the prophets. They all speak with one voice that God is going to reestablish Israel, and it's going to happen in concert with the return of Christ at the end of the age. So you don't just need the book of Revelation to come to that conclusion. You can get it out of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 50, I'm starting at verse 1. We're going to read these first five verses The word which the Lord spoke concerning Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans, through Jeremiah the prophet. Declare and proclaim among the nations. Proclaim it and lift up a standard. Do not conceal it, but say, Babylon has been captured. Bel, which is a contraction of Baal. Do you know Baal? That is just an ancient Chaldee word for all of the gods who are not Yahweh. It's a collective word. Mm. Bel is the god of Babylon. By the way, Baal worship still exists today. I'm still getting that look from Jeff, so I'm not going into it. <laughs> but it's, it's, just trust me, Baal worship is alive and well today. Bel has been put to shame. Marduk has been shattered. Her images have been put to shame and her idols have been shattered. For a nation has come up against her out of the north, and it will make her land an object of horror, and there will be no inhabitant in it. Both man and beast have wandered off, and they have gone away. And in those days, and at that time, okay, here's the leap. Because listen to the description. Let me say first, those first three verses about there's going to be people from the north who are going to conquer Babylon actually happened exactly that way. The Medes and the Persians came down during the time of Babylon. We read about it during Belshazzar's feast. When the hand was writing on the wall, that very night, the Medes and the Persians were coming under the wall because they had stopped up the river that brought water into Babylon so that they could get under the wall, and they were conquering that very night. Okay, so all that happened. Everything Jeremiah says here happens. But then Jeremiah leaps to, verse 4, and in those days, and at that time, declares the Lord, the sons of Israel will come, both they and the sons of Judah as well. Okay, that's northern kingdom and southern kingdom. And they will go along weeping as they go, and it will be the Lord their God that they will seek. And they will ask for the way to Zion, to Jerusalem, turning their faces in its direction. And they will come so that they may join themselves to Yahweh in an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. Has that happened yet? No, nope, no. Nope. 
No. Did the first three verses happen already? Yes. Did the first three verses happen literally, genuinely in time in history? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Do the next two verses have to happen literally, genuinely in time in history? Yes. Yes. But has it happened yet? No. Look down then to verse 14. We're going to start reading there. Here's the description of the fall of Babylon. Draw up the battle lines against Babylon on every side. All you who bend the bow, shoot at her. Do not be sparing with your arrows, for she has sinned against Yahweh. Raise your battle cry against her on every side. She has given herself up. Her pillars have fallen. Her walls have been torn down. Why? Because this is the vengeance of Yahweh. Take vengeance on her. As she has done to others, so do to her. We just read that exact same language in the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. Give her twice the cup that she herself has doled out to other people. Here's God saying that his vengeance against her is going to be doing to her what she has done to others, particularly what she has done to Israel, in that she has not been merciful to them. So take vengeance against her. Here's another really important eschatological point. Just hang on to it. We'll get back to it later. Do you know the word eschatological? I just threw that out there. Great big word. Uh, Eschaton is the Greek word for last things, end times. Eschatology is the study of end times, last things. When I say things that fall into that category, they are eschatological. Eschatologically, what we know is that God is going to take vengeance on the nations of this world. Here we see God saying to the nations of the world, conquer Babylon, because he's against Babylon, and notice that God calls that his vengeance. Only if God is utterly and completely sovereign over the nations of the earth, which nations rise, which nations fall, which armies win, which armies lose, Only if he is that sovereign can he say that events like warfare and the fall of nations like Babylon is actually his vengeance because he is controlling the events of the world to bring about the very thing that he determines is going to happen. The sovereignty of God is everywhere in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Don't miss it. Cut off the sower, says verse 16. Cut off the sower from Babylon. And the one who wields the sickle at the time of harvest from before the sword of the oppressor, for each of them turn back to his own people, and they will each flee to his own land. Okay, that's just like the language we were reading earlier in the book of Revelation, that there's going to be no joy. There's going to be no more brides or bridegrooms. There's going to be no more commerce. Babylon is going to be destroyed. So here's what's happening. I've said all of this. I've read all of this. I've risked boring you with all of this. The reason I am doing this is to show you that the historic fall of physical Babylon is a prefigure in the Bible of the fact that God is going to utterly do the same thing to spiritual, economic, religious, world system Babylon. Mm -hmm. And the very fact that he actually did it in history is proof that when he says it in Revelation, he's also going to do it. He is the same God who has already demonstrated his complete control over nations, which is why he says he's coming back in vengeance to destroy the nations of the world. 
and he has already proven that he can do it. There's no reason to doubt the physical nature of the eschatology of the Bible because history shows, all of human history shows that God can do this. And he's been doing it. And he's going to do it again. Take vengeance on her. Cut off the sower from Babylon and the one who wields the sickle at the time of harvest from before the sword of the oppressor. And they will each turn back his own way and they will each flee to his own land. Israel, meanwhile, God's people, Israel is a scattered flock. The lions have driven them away. By the way, do you know what the insignia of Babylon was? A lion with wings. That's how Daniel described him. We know it as a griffin. So it's no surprise that Jeremiah would say, the lions have driven Israel away because Babylon drove them away. The first one who devoured him was the king of Assyria. Right, we've got that. And this last one who has broken his bones, Israel's bones, is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts. By the way, when God yanks out language like Lord of hosts, he's saying, I'm in charge of the armies of heaven. I'm in charge of the inhabitants of the earth. He is Yahweh Sabaoth, which means the God of the hosts. I am Yahweh of hosts, and I am the God of Israel. And behold, I am going to punish the king of Babylon and his land the same way that I punished the king of Assyria. And I shall bring Israel back to his pasture, and he will graze on Carmel and Bashan. Those are the territories of Jerusalem. And his desire will be satisfied in the hill country of Ephraim. Those are the northern tribes and Gilead. And in those days and at that time, declares the Lord, search will be made for the iniquity of Israel, and there will be none. Search will be made for the sins of Judah, and they will not be found, for I shall pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. What did God just do? Not only did he declare his faithfulness to his covenant people, who he takes credit for scattering, but then he says, I'm going to regather them. I'm going to bring them back to their land. How many times have we heard this? All the prophets speak with one voice. I'm going to bring them back to their own land. I'm going to establish them in their own pasture, meaning that they're going to be well-fed. And at that time, you can look for Israel's sin. There won't be any. Has that happened? No. No. Okay. Let's say we're going to do a quick search for Steve's sin. Steve, we're going to find it? <laughs> the people in the back couldn't see the face Steve made, but it was not a pretty thing. Yeah. Because as yet, we're still here on this sinful planet awaiting the final redemption, the final reclamation of all God's people. And we thrive on that. We live on that. We believe the sovereign grace of God that's going to save us. We are counting on that. We are relying on that. But the only reason you can count on it, the only reason you can believe that God is going to save you, 
measly little you, slimy little, wormy little, depraved little you. Have I put enough adjectives on there? The only reason that God is going to save you and you can be confident in it is because God has said, I'm also going to do it for Israel because they were always my people. If God ever gives up on Israel, you have no confidence, you have no guarantee, you have no proof that he's not going to give up on you. The only reason you can have confidence that God is going to save you is because this is the same covenant-keeping God who is always, always going to save his people, Israel, who has defended Israel against nations and taken down kingdoms because they didn't treat his people right, even when he used them to correct his people. That's the kind of sovereign and faithful God we have. And the more you know about the prophets, the more you know about God's purpose in redemption, the more you know his faithfulness to Israel, the more confidence you can have that you're going to be okay when you stand before him. So not only is this a description of God destroying Babylon physically, this is a demonstration of what God is ultimately going to do. He's going to gather his people, and people are going to be able to search for Israel's sin, for Judah's sin, for Elizabeth's sin, for James's sin. People are going to be able to put effort into finding your sin, and they're not going to find it. Okay, so what's inherent in this text in Jeremiah? What's implied? Because Israel is really, really sinful, really, really depraved. Jeff is really, really sinful, really, really depraved. Can I get an amen? No, I didn't. And then there's these promises of salvation, restoration. You can't even find their sin. What happened between their horrific sinners that God even has to punish with other nations versus you'll never find Israel's sin? What's in between there? Christ. Christ. Christ is always the answer. Whether you're looking in the Old Testament, whether you're looking in the New Testament, when, whether you're looking at the revelation of Jesus Christ, the answer is always Christ. The solution to you is not you. The solution to you is Christ. The solution to Israel's problem can't be Israel. It has to be Christ. And yet the, the same prophecy... I mean, we're reading the same chapter here. The exact same prophecy that says Babylon's going to fall and then historically it does is the same prophecy that says God is not going to be able to find sin in Israel. That also has to happen. Yes. You get my point? Yes. I mean, he's already doing it physically in time. He's already demonstrating himself. He's already proving himself. He's going to do every bit of the rest of it. And that means that he's going to be faithful to Israel. And that also means he's going to be faithful to you. And that also means that the finished work of Christ was fully sufficient. And that means that you're going to be okay standing before God. And not because of you. It means that God himself, through Jesus Christ, accomplished perfect and complete redemption for everybody. He's in the process of saving. And he's going to do it for Israel. And he's going to destroy Babylon. And he destroyed them physically. And he's going to destroy them spiritually. He's going to take the world system. He's going to take the world religion. He's going to take the sorcery that has blinded the whole stupid world. Doesn't the world seem stupid right now? Yes. 
Or is that just me? The world seems to just be drowning in stupidness. Well, that's part of the sorcery of Babylon. That's the witchcraft of Babylon that has human beings who can walk outside and look up and see that there has to be a creator. And yet they'll deny God or they'll make their own gods or they'll make themselves their God. How stupid are we? Okay, God's going to destroy that system because ultimately he's going to get all the glory he deserves. He's going to get all the worship and the praise that he deserves, and he's going to do that by tearing down this world and its system, and that is all part and parcel of what we know as the time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. Next week, we'll start digging into more of the details. I didn't get to all the stuff. I wanted to get all the way through Jeremiah 51. I didn't get anywhere near that. But that's coming attractions. There's still more that Jeremiah says that is going to help us understand the Babylonish language or the descriptions of the fall of Babylon in chapter 18 of Revelation. And hopefully you'll all come along with me as we go on that exploration. Okay? Okay. Questions? Oh, no. I'm not even going to open the floor to questions. I'm so (laughs) sure that you have questions. Stick with us. It's all going to make sense. I love God's word. Don't you love God's word? I mean, how great is this? How truly, genuinely good is it to know that you're in the hands of the absolutely sovereign one? Boy, it just doesn't get better than that.
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.